The Bible is a powerful document. It has the power to encourage, convict, inspire, shock, and reveal. Other times, the words from the Bible may leave you confused or even weirded out. This is one of those times, and as we'll see, it's all for a reason, and it all makes sense in the right frame of mind. The Sons of God, the Daughters of Men, and Batman's Butler on this week's episode of the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast, coming up. You're listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. The Bible is the most read book ever, but for many, it is merely fiction. Join our conversations as we connect the dots to reveal that the story of the Bible is not only true, it's better than fiction. To learn more about the show or to contact us directly, visit us online at betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. Welcome back, listener, to episode 25 of the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. Before we jump right into things, as always, I want to remind you that if you're not subscribed to the podcast, go ahead and take that this moment right now and subscribe, like, favorite, whatever that looks like on your platform of choice. That way you will always be notified every Tuesday morning when we upload a new episode of the podcast and through the uh, grand machinations of the almighty algorithm, we can spread the podcast farther, farther to a larger audience, which is always a good thing. And you can be uh, the person who is always caught up on the podcast in your social uh, group. You can, you don't want to be caught being that one guy who doesn't know what's been happening on the podcast. You know, that's, that's so super embarrassing. Well, I hope you're buckled in listeners because on today's episode, we're, we're going weird a little bit. I feel like Maybe we go weird every week. That's right. <laughs> but this time we're doubling down, but never, never on purpose. Right. This is weirder than weird. <laughs> oh, you could almost say it's a, a stranger thing. Yeah, yeah, there it is. That's good. Uh, so so Matt, Matt's already stole the segue, and now Gandalf is stealing the segue. So this is Nathan Van Horn <laughs> signing off from the Better Than Fiction That's right. podcast. Well, Nathan, we, we've already established the past couple episodes that you're just being outsourced at every turn. I'm so sorry for that. <laughs> ne- next week, there will be this like auto-tuned AI like speaking for me um, <laughs> in the episode. So um, you joke, but we can make that happen. Yeah. So when, when we look at this passage, if you've been following along with us, you already know what we're talking about. And if you're familiar with the Bible, it's it's Genesis 6. It's the discussion about the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim. Whatever and, those are. Yeah, whatever those are. So immediately wheels are beginning to spin. I, there's a, a pastor in Alabama who listens to this podcast who's a friend of mine. And I remember weeks ago... Uh, when he was listening to the podcast, he said, man, I cannot wait till y'all get to Genesis 6. I want to hear your take. So if you are a Bible reader, most likely Genesis 6 is one of those passages where you know there is a, a, a divergence of opinions. And uh, we're going to uh, talk about the multiple opinions today and just just how it fits together. Uh, divergent opinions in the Bible? Surely you that's, must just. That's right. So <laughs> e- even, if, even if we're right, we may not be convincing. But so Genesis 6 uh, feels like that scene from A Christmas Story where the kid is, you know, being challenged to lick the frozen flagpole and someone right. says, I triple dog dare you. Like right. several people who listen to this have said, oh, I'm really anxious to see what y'all do with Genesis 6. And it's, it's almost like I triple dog dare y'all to dare to double down or triple down on the weird aspects of your show. Right. Right. 
And just as a reminder to our listeners is that we're not trading on the weird. This is a dot connecting podcast. We're trying to help you connect the dots in the scripture. And even though weird is interesting to me, my spiritual and Christian life has been most benefited, not by focusing on the weird, but by focusing on the things that are abundantly clear. Uh, my mm. former pastor, Adrian Rogers. That'll preach. Uh, yes. Uh, he, uh, two comments that come to mind when I think about things like this is that he said he was talking to a group of seminarians, and he said, all this talk, guys and girls, about what does the Greek say and what does the Hebrew say and what does it mean? He said, but listen to me right now. If you will simply read and obey and digest the English, it will radically change your life. And uh, that, that has remained with me. The other comment is something that he used to say to new believers. He would frequently say, that start reading the Bible. And when you start reading the Bible, don't worry about what you don't understand. Focus on those parts that you do understand. And then he would tag, and before long, you'll be understanding what you didn't understand. And then he would say, do you understand? He could always turn a phrase. But uh, don't get hung up here. But it is here for a reason, and we're going to try to help you connect the dots today and not take you on a tangent. Yeah, and can I also say that the Bible doesn't need our help to be weird? That's very true. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, and I'm, I don't mean that tongue-in-cheek. I mean that yeah. just very—I mean that so sincerely. Um, you know, we, we've said over and over again, it's written for us, but it's not initially written to us. And so I, I think we have this incredible temptation— uh, to, to see ourselves as the initial audience, and then we establish this arbitrary lens of what most conveniently fits the way that we're already tempted to see the world, and anything that's not, you know, just readily appropriable into that box just gets labeled as, yeah, I'm going to skip over that. Uh, that's 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 in the weird category. But to me, just like you said, Matt, the 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 richness of the tapestry, the mosaic, the story of Scripture. Um, so often it's when you look at the passages that you have labeled as weird um, that that there are some major pieces that can be put back together. And Nathan, one of the things that you have helped me rediscover as we've walked through the text together is that, Nathan, you're an excellent dot connector. I mean, he's, he's like a walking treasury of scripture knowledge of, you know, connecting, uh, which is, by the way, it's a, it's a biblical resource for those of you who don't know what that is, of connecting other verses in the Bible that use similar vocabulary, talk about similar theological themes. Uh, so one of the things that we see is that, hey, this stuff in Genesis 6 is not just in Genesis 6. It's going to be in other places, and that's how we're going to interpret it. But without further ado... Let's let's read it. Let's let's read Genesis six and let's read one through four. But we're only going to talk about one through two. That's there, there's there's the other foot dropping. The bad news: we covered an entire <laughs> that's, chapter that's in right. the last episode, and now we're going to spend potentially multiple episodes on just the first few verses of six. Yeah, we're, we're back on brand. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's All right, so good. here we go. And as always, listener, we're reading from the ESV. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will, shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. 
renowned. What an impressive word. Yeah. Um, I don't so, know about y'all, but I spotted several things that are out of the ordinary. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say probably all of it is. You know, kind of curiosity, Gandalf, like before, I know we've talked about this stuff before, but when, when you read the Bible and you've come to this growing up and, you know, being around the scripture and stuff like that, what was your take on this stuff? Was it just like, man, that's weird. I'm moving on. How did you try to grapple with it? Well, before I became more studied on these sort of things and kind of started digging a little deeper, my go-to, here's my hermeneutic, guys. Here's my go-to. If I see something... Look at you dropping those seminary terms, hermeneutic. I love it. (laughs) That's right. I love it. (laughs) When I see something that I don't understand or I don't like, I just skip it. Just Uh, keep going until you get to something you do understand. Yeah, and that's not not entirely wrong. It's not entirely wrong because you don't want to get bogged down. Because I because I see the the in the ESV version of the Bible the uh, the title of this section is called Increasing Corruption on the Earth and you read it and you're like mm, there's some weird stuff and you go ah no one in the flood okay uh, yes <laughs> I know that part I know that <laughs> yeah but but that, doesn't that, ca- doesn't oh, that capture a worldwide flood so much more reasonable that's it doesn't <laughs> that's that right. capture what we're talking about a worldwide flood oh yeah I can get my mind around that sons of God daughters of men Nephilim nah yeah that, that's a step yeah too far. that's that's too bizarre all right so so gandalf let, let's you know put you on the spot then since you're tempted to skip over this when you think of sons of god daughters of men or the you know ominous nephilim what comes to mind for that stuff well when i when i see phrases like sons of god it makes it you know obviously the most significant time that the term son a son of god is used is we're talking about jesus right so does That's, it does it scandalize you to see it in the plural here? Like oh uh, yeah, a little bit. I'll, like I'll admit the, when I see yeah, something that, like yeah, does it scandalize you to hear uh, the idea Jesus is not the only Son of God? Like that, I'll admit it does. It maybe like somewhere in the distance, my heresy alarm is like prime. <laughs> Flash so what's right? going off. Let's throw one other there. thing out there. Let's say going back to the whole. You've been born on an island and a Bible washed up, and for some reason it's written in a language you can understand. You're reading along. You have not seen the phrase son of God in the singular. That's, that's if right. you're just reading along, the first mention of son and God is is in this plural. So it's it's interesting that we we when we say son of God, and camp there, of course, it's on Jesus, so it's okay, we're excused. But it's reading New Testament backwards instead of Old Testament forward. But speaking of reading New Testament backwards, Gandalf, if I if I started in one of those passages in Paul uh, that talks about the adoption of believers into God's family, you know, like out of Galatians or Romans, um, uh, Paul uses a term that literally in Greek means placed as sons, and it gets translated adoption, eothesion, uh, combining the the noun eos or uh, son with uh, a form of the verb tithemi, uh, which means to put or to place. So eothesion placed his sons. If I, if I, you know, was preaching a sermon talking about being adopted into God's family uh, and then said, are there multiple sons of God? You wouldn't even hesitate to say yes. Right. Yeah. That, I don't feel scandalized so what, by, by what, that. When it's an abstract earthly reality, not weird. When it's a concrete spiritual or heavenly reality, we're like, oh, pump the brakes. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Or what if I said the statement, you know, Jesus has brothers. Oh, I'm fine with that, right? Yeah, because well, he does. Well, you know that God has, or here's another one, God has many sons. Is that a little more, a little more scandalous? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. My foot's yeah. hovering over the Danger breakdown. Will yeah. Robinson. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, what is going on here? He has many sons and many brothers. Whoa, what is going on here? But this is language that the, the, the Bible uses. So, um, And you know, something, something about that is it's not necessarily that I'm scandalized or I, I feel uneasy about that sort of thing because, it's, you know, it's in here in the Bible. But it's mainly because I've heard this before from more unsavory you know, a little bit more dangerous ideas. I've heard these terms, people start talking about, you know, brothers and sons of God and things like that. So of, of a less orthodox nature, is that, is that what you're implying? Um, well, uh, let me uh, capture this because one of the, you know, when I've uh, taught on this in church, one of the points of pushback uh, that I've gotten is, well, what do you do with uh, John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. Like one and only son, yeah. Like how, In other words, how can you have multiple sons of God if Jesus is the one and only son of God or only begotten son of God? And I say, so number one, that's not my problem. First of all, that's the Bible's problem because here's the first instance of this language and it's plural, sons of God, right? Um, the second, yeah, it, I, I, in other words, I didn't write the Bible. I'm doing my best to try to interpret it. And I probably fail at that at least half of the time. Um, Michael Heiser makes a wonderful point on John three 16. He actually flips over to Hebrews 11. I believe it's Hebrews 11, 17, right? Um, well, let me pull, let me pull that up real quick. Uh, in Hebrews eleven seventeen, it's talking about Isaac as Abraham's son, uh, and in Hebrews eleven seventeen, Isaac is called Abraham's monoyenes son. It's the same word that's used of Jesus in John three sixteen. What's the catch, Gandalf? Is Isaac Abraham's only son? No, we know of at least one other one, right? Kid by the name of Ishmael, right? Um, so what is captured through Mono Yenes is not that Isaac is Abraham's only son, but it is his Mono, one or single, Yenes, the word from which we get gene, and it's his single gene son. It means even though there is quantitatively more than one child, qualitatively there is no child like Isaac. He is a one-of-a-kind son. Um, and that's what's being captured uh, about Jesus, I think, biblically. Um, you have sons of God applied both to uh, heavenly beings, primarily in the Old Testament, and uh, earthly believers adopted into God's family, and, and, and even the nation of Israel. Uh, um, but even though there are many sons of God, there's only, I got this from Matt, there are many sons of God, there's only one God the Son. Right? So to go back into the recesses of our mind of last year, Gandalf, do you remember the word ontology? Yes. Uh, so ontology, ontologically, there is only one God the Son. There's only one like Jesus. Like all the other sons that God has, none of them are like Jesus. He is unique, as, as Nathan is saying. However, the Bible does acknowledge the existence of other beings that the Bible's language calls sons of God. So when we are scandalized by God having multiple sons and that they may be either human beings in their glorified state um, or these angelic beings and things like that, the scandalization 
comes and stems from our application of theology that Jesus is the one and only unique son. It's the way we have fleshed that out. And I think it's probably more to do with English language than anything else. It's the way we flesh that out that complicates the matter. Because I want the listeners to the podcast to understand, hear and understand, there is only one God the Son. There is nobody like Jesus. However, the other beings that are created, the spiritual beings, as well as believers in their glorified state, are called sons of God. So it's not a false statement to say that God has many sons. And can I can I also de-escalate uh, you know, the this way of putting things and saying that the language of sons of God does not necessarily connote a biological relationship. So this Correct. is not, you know, this is not Greco-Roman mythology where the gods um, find partners all the time with whom they are procreating, though that is something we're getting into today. Um, this is not mythology uh, where, you know, this uh, primary God or chief God at the head of the pantheon uh, procreates and has lots of little gods. No, this is a God who creates through speaking, right? But there is some Correct. there is some relationship, even if not a biological one, that is being captured. Um, Matt, so you, you captured, this is the first time we're seeing the language of son of God or more directly sons of God in the text. What, what have we seen in the text so far that suggests, and here's what that might be talking about? So... Back in the recesses of those early episodes of taking the second look at Genesis 1, we talked about the host of heaven, and we also talked about the existence of spiritual beings. Otherwise, you know, remember we talked about where does the serpent character, the Nakash, come from? Well, it comes to this idea of the heavenly host. These are other created beings that are in the heavenly places, and the heavenly places are filled with them. Well, what we're going to see is that these created beings are called sons of God. And th that's what we're going to observe here today. Matt, you hit the nail on the head. You're going exactly where I was going, because even though we haven't seen sons of God language, we do have little indicators about the heavenly council, spiritual beings, um, the host of heaven uh, that, that we see over and over again in the Old Testament. And one thing that's interesting for me is we do have passages. In fact, most of our passages that have sons of God language in the Old Testament are not dealing with earthly beings. They're dealing with heavenly beings, the divine counsel that we set forth in earlier episodes. In fact, one of the passages that comes to mind for me is Psalm 89, which is such an important passage. And, and I love this. For who in the skies, literally, um, who in the skies can be compared to uh, the Lord, Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings, literally in the text, the sons of, and it's a weird Hebrew form, Elim, whether that's a textual variation of Elohim, but who among the sons of God is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones? Um, so the sons of God being used synonymously with counsel of the holy ones, um, uh, and awesome above all who are around him. So here's God, here's the divine counsel, and they are being referred to as sons of God, right? Um, Matt, 
Matt, what, what in your mind is the most familiar place probably in the Old Testament where we see this? Well, the most familiar place is uh, Job 1, where we read about the sons of God coming to present themselves before the Lord, and then Satan came with them, or the Satan. So also, when we read that, you get this idea of, you know, God is there in his court, so to speak, and the sons of God go to present themselves before the Lord. And as ancient peoples would have just understood that whole heavenly court stuff, as they would have understood the sons of God to be the entourage of God. Uh, For instance, the king's court, to belong to the king's court, means that you're in the presence of the king. Uh, Perhaps you've seen uh, the movie The Ten Commandments, or perhaps you've also seen um, not just The Ten Commandments, but The Prince of Egypt, and even other... Uh, gosh, you can see it in the European movies, uh, but the, the, you know, the court and stuff like that with uh, the European monarchs is that when you walk into the throne room, that there are people who are there around the throne. And those are the people who are the sons of the king. They're the family of the king. They serve the king. Um, so this whole idea of the sons of God are, are these beings who are in the presence of of God, they are part of his heavenly court. And that's what they clearly mean in Job 1. The sons of God coming to present themselves before their Lord cannot be human beings. They clearly are spiritual beings because, you know, the, the serpent, not the serpent, but the Satan there, who is clearly a spiritual being, is is with them. Yeah, and we haven't really gone into uh, Deuteronomy 32, and today's probably not the day for that. Right. Um, but, but it's talking- there. Yeah, when the Most High gave the nation, uh, gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And to me, that's such a key text for understanding what's going on in Job chapter one. It's like uh, you know this this divine council. It's almost like this heavenly bureaucracy where God has entrusted um, certain portions of creation to the purview of spiritual beings. But I think that's what you see in Daniel as well, where you have like the the spiritual being that presides over Persia, warring with the spiritual being that presides over Greece. Uh, so, Or it, it's, even earlier in Daniel, right, when Nebuchadnezzar tosses them in the fire, and then there's suddenly the fourth man. Uh, right. And this is not an Orthodox uh, Jewish guy. This is the Babylonian king. <laughs> and he right. says, That's right. I see a fourth guy in the fire, and he looks like a son of the gods. Right. Um, he, he He's not referring to a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, at least to the best of my understanding. He's capturing, hey, there's a divine or spiritual or heavenly being in the flames with those folks. He doesn't have a Trinitarian understanding. He, he's, you know, he's a pagan. He's a pagan. I definitely did not get that from the VeggieTales adaptation, so thank you, Nathan. <laughs> but, but he knows that something supernatural is going on there. It's not every day you walk in the flames and don't get burned. Right. You know, it's interesting. So when we're reading about that occurrence, we have no problem with saying, oh, of course that was a divine being there in the flames with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh-huh. But... When we come to Genesis 6, it's like, I don't know, man. You got to be careful with that stuff. And in all fairness, I I will just go ahead and uh, confession here. When I was a kid growing up in church, early college days, just about everybody I heard talk about this passage 
that took a supernatural view seemed just a little bit crazy to me. And I don't, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but it's, it just seemed I hope way not, now too, that's your position. <laughs> yeah, I know way too mythological. And, and now, now obviously I've shifted positions, but, um, this is something that, uh, you're either, it's the, to hold two paths in an open wood thing to, to quote Robert Frost, the, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. Sorry, I could not travel both. So you're going to go somewhere with Genesis 6 because it's going to affect how you're going to interpret the rest of the Bible. Now, I'm not suggesting in order to understand the Bible in its fullness, you must understand Genesis 6. No, but it is going to affect how you interpret this is going to affect how you're going to read the rest of the Bible. And Nathan, there's something I want you to talk about because you talked about it before the episode and that is selective supernaturalism. Yeah, so so we see it like on the one hand, biblical faith, um, biblical faith requires that we take some claims um, that are kind of out there in the Bible and take them very seriously, right? Um, it's right. not it's not every day that we claim someone rose from the dead or that God raised them from the dead. Not only that God raised them from the dead, but never again to die. And Correct. yet the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of the Christian faith. Um, mm. people, are, people are not usually scandalized by the idea of Jesus healing people in his earthly ministry, opening the eyes of the blind. That's the stuff that gets put into our praise and worship songs. We don't or have being as born much of a virgin. Uh, or even being born of a virgin, though. Sometimes that's scandalous uh, for a few people. I, I think of the right. uh, uh, 20th century uh, theologian Wolfhart Pannenberg. Um uh, but it's, it's interesting. So let, let me go back to the, the miracle thing. People have no problem with the miracles, uh, right? In fact, we, like that's the stuff we want to put in the praise and worship songs. And yet we don't put anything about Jesus exercising demons in our praise and worship songs. <laughs> I mean, they're side by side in the text, but they're not side by side in our songs because one of those to us through our filters feels a little bit more out there, right? Correct. Um, right. And, and so, you know, the text makes no distinction on, on the severity and, and you know, of, of those claims concerning Jesus, the filter is not on the text in. The filter is on our end. And that, this is what uh, I pick up the language of selective supernaturalism for Heiser. He's not saying, and I'm not saying, that you should always look for a more out there supernatural explanation of the text uh, than the one you're most familiar with. But what he is saying is when the, the, when the plain language of the text seems to be making a claim that hinges on a supernatural understanding at work in the dynamics of the text. Don't just dismiss it out of hand before you see what it's saying, how it's saying, and why it's saying that in the flow of the biblical story. Right? Right. That's a good statement. Matt, we were talking about before we recorded. Just a few chapters before this, um, you have Genesis 3. Uh, with the serpent and the woman in the Garden of Eden, right? And Correct. so in, in that passage, we either have to say the Bible is setting forth the image of a talking snake, um, you know, a fairy tale Bible with, with talking animals, uh, so these are moral fables, or that snake language, as we looked at in Numbers 21, is sometimes used interchangeably with the seraphim. 
uh, and this is probably capturing a spiritual being. So if I can take that leap in Genesis 3, why can I not out of hand take that leap in Genesis 6? And we're definitely going to have to have to have another episode to unpack this. What's so interesting for me is the verbal parallels that you see if you read uh, Genesis 3 and then Genesis 6 in tandem. Um, in Genesis 3, let's look at Genesis 3, 6 very quickly. And I encourage our readers, I mean our uh, listeners, uh, to read the text as we are if you're, in a, if, if you're not listening in your car. Um, but uh, in Genesis 3, 6, look what we have. So when the woman saw... That's the Hebrew verb ra'ah. When the woman saw that the tree was good, that's the Hebrew word tov. Uh, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took lakak of its fruit and ate. And she also gave uh, some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So I, I want to hit three words. She saw ra'ah that it was good tov. And so she took Lakak. Flip right from there to Genesis 6. And look what it says of the sons of God and the daughters <coughs> of man. It says the sons of God saw, Ra'ah, that the daughters of man were attractive, in the Hebrew, Tov. So here in Genesis 6, we see the same cluster of words that we saw in Genesis 3. Saw, good, and took. In Genesis 3 we know we're dealing with more than an earthly reality. There's a spiritual being that's leading mankind astray. Why are people so hesitant to go there with the sons of God, especially the way the term is used in the Old Testament in Genesis 6? That's a great question. And I think that there are multiple answers for that. I think the fact that we're a Western, mostly materialistic society. But if I'm honest, though, this problem started long before the Enlightenment, you have people as far back as St. Augustine that are struggling with this view. And I, I think there's probably, it probably exceeds the limits of this podcast to, you know, discuss how and why there's such a hesitation here. I, I think there, though, there is also, and I think Michael Heiser talks about this, there is a desire to make the Bible reasonable and acceptable to people in society. And the problem with that is, is that you always end up giving too much away. And Oh, that's a you, good way to say that. Yeah. Mm. You always end up giving too much away, and then you leave holes— uh, so, like, for instance, if if I demythologize and de-supernaturalize Genesis 6, what preventeth me, so so to speak, if, for instance, I'm sitting in church and I just hear my pastor, he's just talked about a supernatural interpretation of Genesis 3, a few weeks later we get to Genesis 6, and then he tells me, this is absolutely ridiculous to take a supernatural view of this because we know such things don't happen what is that unknowingly what is happening i'm saying if you jettison one you jettison another yeah right we're not going to believe those well there's a whole heck of a lot in the bible that is not very reasonable and we're about to talk about one but the the worldwide flood yeah but but it's there so it's it is a, not to argue slippery slope 
But when you start desupernaturalizing parts of the Bible, just because they're not reasonable and we want to be accepted, is it, it man, you always end up giving too much away. Yeah, I, I love that take. And, and again, my thing is we're approaching the Bible as a story. So I at least want to do it the, the favor of reading it the way I would read every other story not by reading it as what makes the most immediate sense to me as what makes the most consistent sense within a story. And I will say this is that you look at ancient cultures. We talked a few weeks ago about Native American culture. When you certainly look at ancient Greek culture, ancient Egyptian culture, ancient Chinese culture, when you look at um, uh, ancient Mesopotamian culture, for sure, everybody has this story. This is a story about when the gods intermingled and, and with humanity. I, and ironically, in a much earlier episode, I, I, I posited the same question, but about the flood rather than about this. What right. makes what makes more sense that nothing ever happened and suddenly everyone just started talking about nothing or that something happened that gave birth to a version of the story that inspired all the others? That's a good point. Um, so. And just as, as a, a closing comment for me, if you think we sound weird, you're thinking correctly. And it is not weird to think this stuff is weird. Like, even though I'm accepting, and you're going to find out next week as we dole out the three different views, and you're going to find, for, for me, I land on a, a very supernatural interpretation. Don't think for a minute that, like, I'm just settled on it and it's like, yeah, this is totally reasonable to me. It's not reasonable at all. But nor is the virgin birth or the hypostatic union or, you know, the, the, the nature of how the, the Holy Spirit indwells humanity. Like, there's so much I don't understand about the Bible. And I'm not you, putting you, these all on the same level. I'm, I'm just saying it is not – you don't have to get very far into the Bible to find something that Matt can't get his head around but can quickly explain even though he doesn't fully understand it. So this is one of a great many things I cannot fully explain to you. By the way, Matt, you are you are doing a really good job channeling Doc Brown from Back to the Future, where we're <laughs> going, we don't need roads. Um. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of uh, Bruce Wayne's Butler Alfred. You know, let's stop mm. trying to outsmart the truth and just let it have its day. Oh. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> but and and again, the, the main thing I want to capture is so number one, let the Bible be weird. Right. Um, number two, acknowledge that our filters of what is weird and what is not are sometimes arbitrary and inconsistent. Right. That that's that's my big thing because if if I will acknowledge that I am sometimes arbitrary and inconsistent in the and the parts of the Bible. Um, that, that seem weird to me. Um, I can do a better job of letting the Bible be the Bible, letting the truth have its day, uh, as Gandalf so beautifully captured in the words mm -hmm. of Alfred Pennyworth, as portrayed <laughs> by Michael Caine. Yes. <laughs> well, listener, if you like these conversations that we're having and you are not uh, scandalized, but instead intrigued by the weirdness, I can assure you that next episode... Just lean into it, people. We're doubling yes. down even farther. Now it's now it's quadrupling down because we doubled down this episode and next time we're doing it again. Yes. So the very, This is a dream within a dream within a dream. Very Inception. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm. Indeed. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, thank you for listening and we look forward to seeing you next week. Bye. Mm. Later. Shalom.
You still have that one, Nathan. We'll never take that one from you. 